the La Crosse Public Library Archives presents Dark Lacrosse Stories, a series in collaboration with the La Crosse Tribune. Dark Lacrosse is a suite of programs that feature the seedier side of lacrosse history and also include a downtown walking tour, a trolley tour, and an annual stage production with new content each year. I was there that night with my daughter. She was around 12 at the time. A large group of men overpowered the deputies guarding the jail. And very shortly after that, the man who had killed poor Frank Burton was brought out of the jail with his hands tied. We saw the crowd string the rope around the man's neck and hang him in a tree. It, it was horrifying. I will never forget his face. He had such a look of terror. I tried to get my daughter to look away and get her out of there, but I couldn't. It happened so fast. I will never get over that image of his face, closely pressed against the tree limb, dead. My daughter will never forget it either. She's grown now, but she says she still has nightmares about that night. Upon breaking Frank Burton's shooter out of the jail, the mob of angry lacrosse citizens gathered in the park-like area outside the jail and courthouse, held back the deputies and other officers, and hauled him out, hands tied. Some in the crowd wanted the man to speak, to explain his actions. Others were growing worried that the National Guard would be called out to disperse them. They found a rope, put it around the shooter's neck, and began hauling him up into a tree. The rope broke, and the men fell to the ground. A thicker rope was located, and this time it did not break. The body was taken down and left in the charge of the sheriff. Papers in the pockets of the lynch man helped identify him as Nathaniel Mitchell, known by his nickname Scotty, who had in recent years worked for logging camps in winters and on the river in the summers. It is not fully clear what Scotty Mitchell's problem with Frank Burton was. The trouble may have started from more than a year earlier. Burton had been a customs official at the city's riverfront, and rivermen desiring sick leave had to get his permission before their employees would let them off. Burton had denied Mitchell this permission in the summer of 1883, and Mitchell may have held a grudge. Stories were reported after the lynching that Mitchell had made threats against Burton in the past. Mitchell had been arrested a few times over the years for getting too rough in bars and brothels, and had reportedly spent some months in mental health facilities in Wisconsin and in Minnesota. A coroner's inquest was held the day after the lynching. Somehow, even though hundreds and maybe thousands had been in the mob, None of the witnesses could name any individuals responsible for the vigilante actions. Press reports included various names, but the accounts differ. Some were quick to include local celebrities, such as Doc Powell, putting him at the door of the jail, or at the head of the beam, or up in the tree calling for the rope. He may well have been there, but it seems unlikely that he was in all of those places. The shooter of Frank Burton was now dead, but the community had yet to mourn. The day of Frank Burton's funeral was a major event in the city. To accommodate the expected crowds, a funeral was conducted in and outside of his recently built home on Cass Street. More than 2,000 people attended the visitation in the morning. Even more people attended the formal funeral that afternoon. Two ministers presided over the service and a choir sang. A eulogy was given from the front porch. Sidewalks and streets were crowded for several blocks around. Afterward, a procession said to have been up to 180 carriages long, plus hundreds of people on foot, was formed as the casket was transported to Oak Grove Cemetery. 
The hearse at the front of the procession reached the burial plot about the time the last carriage joined the line on Cash Street. It was reported that upward of 5,000 people went to the cemetery that afternoon. A newspaper account stated, quote, No one ever had a grander public funeral in this city. The night closed in with golden clouds, and the soft winds seemed to whisper, All is well. From this bleak peaceful end to the darkest hour in lacrosse's history. It was the night we had all succumbed to our basest and darkest purpose. And now I'd like to welcome in David Kranz, director of the Southwest Wisconsin Library System based in Fenimore. David was a member of the Archives Department from 2013 to 2018 and did some of the initial research for this story. When people hear the word lynching, some assume that there's a race-related motive involved, that is not the case with the Scotty Mitchell lynching. As you've just heard, the outrage at Mitchell that led to a crowd's murderous vigilante actions was over Mitchell's shooting of another white man, Frank Burton, downtown in front of hundreds of men, women, and children. There remains a sad possibility that there may have been race-related lynchings in our area, but no records are known to document them. There are certainly documentations of racism and racial violence in our city, which you can investigate at the La Crosse Public Library archives, but there is only the one recorded lynching. That makes this story a biggie for lacrosse. As the only recorded lynching in the city's history, of course it stands out. But unlike several other true crime tales the Dark Lacrosse team has researched and performed, this one heavily involves the broader community. You could have been at the parade where Frank Burton was shot. Maybe your neighbor stood outside the jail as the crowd demanded Scotty Mitchell's life. Or any of us could have been part of the funeral procession, dropping symbolic sprigs of cedar on Burton's grave. It's very easy to imagine that, had we been around in 1884, we could very well have been witness to some aspect of this multifaceted story. Adding to the appreciation of the Mitchell lynching story is how almost literary the events are. Through the action of the story, we observe that an abominable deed performed by the individual can as well be performed by the mob. We are treated to an exploration of justice as a theme, as we hear of an individual and then a group responding to injustices. The community as a character participates in the action, playing important roles at major points in the story. And the themes are not all stuck in the past. The Burton murder Mitchell lynching story contains many themes that remain current in our world today. Healthcare availability and affordability, perceptions of mental health, and immigrant experiences just to list a few. The source material available for this story, which is primarily local newspaper accounts written in the days following the murder and lynching, goes to some lengths to place individuals at the jailhouse doors. Names mentioned include fairly well-known figures from the city's past, such as Doc Powell and Nathan Smith. These are interesting people. They very well may have been in the midst of the action, breaking down doors and calling for rope. Or they may simply have been easy to pick out of the crowd. Doc Powell, for one, has the reputation of being the sort who enjoyed seeing his name in the papers, whether he was there that evening, hollering from a tree branch, as one article said, or not.
We could have told the story from one of their perspectives, or from a second-floor office overlooking the vigilante mob, or from any number of individual perspectives. But quickly, the newspapers and others of the time stopped highlighting individual roles. The dark lacrosse telling of this history, echoing the coroner jury's verdict, picks no one to single out by name, impressing on us the depth and breadth of the community's shame. The effect would be diminished if we were to hang responsibility for the lynching on any individual local historical celebrities. Beyond the events of the murder and lynching, newspaper coverage of Burton's funeral was also extensive. In addition to the numbers of crepe-adorned horse-drawn carriages that paraded to the cemetery and descriptions of the many flower arrangements, one newspaper article identified a hymn that was sung at Burton's funeral called Pass Over to Thy Rest. We were able to find music from the time period for this piece, and Dark Lacrosse pianist and composer Luke Thering incorporated the hymn into the stage production. It was also featured earlier in this piece, enhancing the history being shared through the performance of this story. You can visit some locations where the events of this story took place. Fourth and Main, where Frank Burton was shot in the street. The general area of the old courthouse and jail, now occupied by the Bell Square building. Frank and Abigail Burton's house, where Frank never got to live, but where Abby resided and raised their family. And of course, Oak Grove Cemetery. The Frank and Abigail Burton house at 1018 Cass Street is also part of one of the Footsteps of Lacrosse walking tours and is featured on the website footstepsoflacrosse.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>